The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Let's ask for God's blessing again, shall we? Father, we were just singing those words, speak, O Lord. And Father, it is our desire this morning as we open the word of God together that you would indeed speak to us. Father, you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, alone can speak into the very depths of a soul of a man or a woman. Father, we ask you this morning as we come to look at this great, this great event of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit in your disciples. Father, we pray that we would be challenged, that we would understand and know what it means to walk in the presence, the abiding presence of God with us and in us in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Father, we ask you for your help. We plead with you again, O God, that my voice would fall silent at the edge of the pulpit, but that your voice would speak into the hearts and minds of all of us. Father, we pray that you would awaken faith. Father, we pray that you would teach us the things we need to hear. Father, we pray that you would correct and rebuke and reprove where necessary. Father, for those who are struggling and downcast, we pray, O God, that the word of God might shore them up, strengthen them, and encourage them for another week to walk a little more closely with the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask you for a work that only you can do. And we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Where is the power to live the new life in Christ? Why is it that some seem to live in in seeming constant victory and joy and the rest of us just seem to waver and wallow and struggle and every day is a little bit more of a struggle, a little, little different bit of struggle? I want you to know it's not because God has some super Christians in, in the fold. They're not mythical men and women out there that can exegete a passage at 40 paces, can leap over a church in a single bound, can always know every verse and every doctrine and every scripture perfectly. They simply don't exist. The reality is that Jesus Christ chose ordinary men and women to be his disciples. He chose ordinary people to live this life but that it requires the filling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice a number of things in our text. You have a little uh, pink note sheet in your, in your bulletin there. You can follow along if you like, and there is space on the back. If you want to make your own notes, you can do that. There is a preparation involved in what happened here at Pentecost. Jesus chose ordinary men to be his disciples, sinful, self-centered, self-exalting, self-preservating, self-preserving disciples. 
If you think back in your mind's eye to the book of Mark in chapter 9, and they're walking along the road, and the idea there is that Jesus is a little bit separated from the rest of the disciples, and they're back behind him as they're walking along, and they're arguing with one another about who would be the greatest. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm the biggest. I will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. No, 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 no. I'm a tax collector. I have an in with the government. I will be the greatest. Oh, no, you guys have got it all wrong. It's not you guys will be the greatest. I will be the greatest. And they come into the house, and Jesus looks at them. And you can imagine the look in Jesus' eyes. What were you talking about on the road back there? And all of a sudden, all their boasts about who will be the greatest, confronted with Jesus, would fade to nothing. And you can just see them all kind of dropping their eyes and sort of avoiding his gaze. They were very selfish, ordinary men and women. Remember Matthew 20. The sons of Zebedee come with their mother, and their mother speaks on their behalf to Jesus. Give my two sons thrones, one on your right and one on your left. They want to be the greatest, but they get their mom to come and ask Jesus. Self-seeking, selfish men. Remember Matthew 16. Jesus is there and he says, who do people say that I am? And one disciple offers one explanation and one offers another explanation. And finally, Peter sticks up in his hand and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great pronouncement. And Jesus immediately begins to teach about his suffering and his death. And Peter comes alongside and he puts his arm under Jesus and he pulls him aside and he says, now listen, Lord. He begins to rebuke him and tell him off. Why? Because Peter knows that if Jesus is truly his Lord and his master, and if he is truly following Jesus, and if what Jesus is saying about suffering and death is part of discipleship, it means that he too will have to go to his death. And in self-preservation, he says, no, this will never happen to you. He starts to tell the Lord off. Selfish, self exalting and self-preserving. And we know the story of scriptures, the wonderful story of the gospel that Christ died for them and asked to set us free from sin and death. We know that that night when he was betrayed and his betrayer came and all of the disciples ran away, they all fled. Peter denied him, Judas betrayed him, but they all fled away. They all failed their Lord Jesus. We know in the story of the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts is how the Lord Jesus restores Peter and gathers the disciples together. In Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses, he's promising them things about the Spirit of God. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God and he gets them ready. He prepares them. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, we can see that they are all together and there's an eagerness and an anticipation that's in the lives of these men as they have gathered together to prepare for the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is indeed at work among them. They're united with one accord in verse 14. They're devoted to prayer in verse 14. They have submitted themselves to the reading, the exposition, and the application of Scripture all the way from verse 14 down to the verse number 20 there. They're submitted to it. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read those words. It says that they were all together in one place. And there's one word that just keeps, I keep tripping over it. In the end of verse 2, it says where they were sitting. I think, why, Lord? 
Why were they sitting? It was customary for them to stand as they prayed, but for some reason, as these men and women have gathered together to pray, they are sitting in in that house. And we know the story. The Spirit of God comes. I want you to notice from the text the sound that accompanies His coming. It's a mighty rushing wind. And immediately our minds, we read those verses, those words that Luke has written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. We go back to the Old Testament and we think of all those scenes and all those places in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God or God Himself came and in the form, not in the form, came in the presence of a rushing wind, a mighty wind. Notice also that it came from heaven. Verse number 2, it was a heavenly source, a holy sound, a godly, glorious sound. Notice it came suddenly. You think, why does Luke include these descriptions of the sound and the wind? He wants to get across something that's very important here. This was not to be mistaken for just some kind of weather event, a great tornado rushing through the city. No, the sound was in the house. Now we do know that the sound was also outside the house because it says in verse number 6, at this sound, the sound of the wind, the multitude came together. It drew men and women from all over the city to where the disciples were in the upper room and perhaps outside the upper room preaching the gospel. It was a great sound. But notice he says it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't an actual wind. It was the sound of the wind that drew them together. I saw a movie presentation of this once, and, and as the wind sound increased, the disciples ran over to the window, and he threw the window open, and all the trees are absolutely still outside. They're not bending and blowing in the wind. It's a sound like a rushing wind. A rushing wind. Notice also the sight that accompanied, accompanied the Spirit's coming. It had the appearance of fire. Again, there's a comparison there. He doesn't mean a literal fire was there with literal flames of tongues of flames sitting on their heads. It literally means that there was an appearance. It looked like fire. Notice it had the idea of one flame that was divided, it says, and divided tongues. Why would he include the word divided if it was not from one source? So the idea is one source and it divided and distributed and these tongues of fire settled upon each of them. Notice that they all saw it. Each one saw that the other one had also received this gift. And so as they're sitting in the room and this great event is unfolding, they're realizing it is not just one person that received the Spirit. In the Old Testament writings, you read the prophets and they would say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news or to preach the gospel, or whatever it was. But in this case, everybody in the room saw that everybody else in the room had also received this gift. Notice the gift that accompanied His coming. It says that first they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then secondly, they began to speak in other tongues, or better is languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. The tongues speak of language. You put your finger across the page from verse number 4 where it says tongues and you look up in verse number 6. It says they each hear them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these Galileans and so on? And then verse 8 he says, we each hear them in his own native language. 
It's the same word. It's the idea that there are other languages being spoken. The gift, by the way, notice this. In verse number 11, he says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That gift that was given by the Spirit of God on that day for those men as they spoke the mighty things of God was given to glorify God above all else. The Spirit of God gives gifts. And we'll see that as we go through the book of Acts. But those gifts are given with a specific purpose. And it is never to draw attention and glory to the user of the gift. It is always to draw attention and glory to God Himself. Now I want you to notice something else here. Notice the uniqueness of the event. The Spirit here poured out in full, accompanied by sight and sound signs. From this time on, the Spirit given to the believers at the time of conversion is as every believer believes. So it's not happening in en masse in a group. From this point onwards, as someone comes into the contact with the gospel, they hear the message. The Spirit of God begins to do a work in their hearts to separate them and regenerate them. And as they're regenerated, they believe and they're sealed or branded with the Holy Spirit. But it happens at a conversion. This happened en masse for a group in this particular time. Never again after this do we see that same coming of the Holy Spirit with the tongues of fire and the mighty mighty rushing wind. It never happens again. It was a unique event. So as we pray for revival and we pray for God's Spirit to fill us and use us, we do not pray with the expectation of the tongues of fire and the wind. I checked out in the book of Acts, there's two other suggested Pentecost. There's a, a Samaritan Pentecost is suggested and a Roman Pentecost is suggested. Neither are accomplished with these or accompanied with these sights and sound. It's a very unique thing. But I want to notice something else. These signs that are given, the wind and the fire, they tell very much how the Spirit of God works in us. And the question we're asking is, where does this power to live this Christian life come from? And we know it comes from the Holy Spirit. So I want you to notice, second main point is this, I want you to notice the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God in that moment came upon those disciples never to depart. He rested on them and He stayed on them. The great hope, the great joy that we have as believers is the Spirit of God does not depart from us. You and I are sealed and branded with the presence of the Spirit of God the moment we believe and the presence of the Spirit of God remains with us all through our days. The signs clearly remind us of the presence of God in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, I know I mentioned this last week, but we'll look at it again just briefly. God in the Garden of Eden, after the man and woman have committed the sin and they have realized they're naked, they try to cover up their shame with a, a clothing of leaves. And the Bible says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden. It's kind of an awkward translation, but the the text literally means they heard the sound of the mighty rushing wind of God moving through the trees. And there is a sense in those words of the anger of God at what man has done. In Exodus 13 and 14, we see the same signs show up there. The pillar of fire and the cloud over the people. It's an appearance. 
not exactly a pillar of cloud. It looked like a pillar of cloud. And it looked like a column of fire up above the people. Also, as they're coming out of Egypt, they go down to the water of the Red Sea. And what does God do? He calls a mighty rushing wind to blow all that night to separate the Red Sea as a wall of water on one side or the other. And the presence of God is with the people. In Job 40 and verse 6, you know the story. Job is all these horrible sores and all this great pain and lament. And he's making his case before God. And God comes back and God speaks to him. And the Bible says there was a whirlwind. And the presence of God was in the whirlwind. And God spoke to him from that. It pictures the presence of God among his people. In Ezekiel 37 verse 19, God describes to Ezekiel the Holy Spirit in terms of a wind and a breath. Ezekiel, yes, Lord, can these bones live? He looks at them, and he did the smartest thing he could have done. He said, you know, Lord, because he's looking at it thinking, I don't know about that. That's dry, dead bones. I don't think they could live. But he says the smartest thing. He says, Lord, you know. And God causes us a wind, a rushing wind, the breath of God to pass over those bones. And God does what only God can do. He takes that which is absolutely dead and breathes into it and causes it to live. It's the presence of the Spirit of God in wind and in breath. And of course, you know the story from Genesis, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God moved across the surface of the waters. The idea of that is the breath, the, the wind of God. The ruach is the Hebrew word. And it means breath. It moved back and forth across the waters. And finally, we come back to Acts chapter 2. And God's Spirit comes with, not in, but with the mighty rushing wind. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand this, that when God's Spirit fills us, God is with us. Tremendous truth. I'll stop for a moment this week. I was just thinking about this stuff in the time we have prayer and whatnot. And I was thinking, just try and get your head around this one idea. God the infinite, omnipotent, absolutely holy, Powerful God dwells in mere humans. You think, yeah, I know that. Oh, no, no, no. Don't just go, yeah, I know that. Stop. Back up. Meditate on that thought for a moment. God causes His Spirit to dwell within each of us. He seals us by filling us with His Spirit. And God has been saying all through salvation of history, this great truth, I will be with you. In Genesis 26 and 24, he says to Abraham, I will be with you and I will bless you. In Genesis 31 verse 3, he says to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and lo, I am with you. In Exodus 3 verse 12, Moses is standing there. He's standing in front of a fiery burning bush that is not consumed. Again, it's the appearance of fire in that bush that reminds us of God's presence there. And what does God say to Moses? I'm with you, Moses. Go in this your strength. Remember Gideon? Oh, mighty man of valor. He's reaping corn or threshing corn in a wine press, trying to hide it from the Moabites. Go in this your strength. I am with you. Take your Bibles and flip over 
to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to read there together. Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. As you're turning over, remember the scene after the golden calf incident. And the presence of God is promised to Moses. I will go with you and my presence will go with you all through these wilderness wanderings. I will be with you. And the end of the story of the Exodus and Moses has died and this young man, well, he's not young, he's 80-something, which I guess if you're 80-something isn't young either, but you know you can decide whether that's old or not. But he's in his 80s and he's standing there and he's going to be sent into commission to do God's work, to lead God's people. And this is what God does. I want you to notice the way the writer structures this. It's beautiful. Joshua chapter 1, we're even verse 5 to verse 9. And God speaks to Joshua and he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. In this great verse, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord is with you. Joshua, look what he says. He, he bookends the whole section from 5 to 9 with the same promise. Joshua, I will be with you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. In verse 9, what's he finish up with? The Lord your God is with you. And when the disciples there on that morning, Pentecost morning came, and they were filled with the Spirit of God, what was implied in those two signs, the rushing wind and the fire of God, is the abiding presence of God with His people from that time onwards. And brother and sister in Christ, listen, you and I can know every single day that God is with us. You are not on your own. God is not only with you, Christian. He is in you. You are never alone. You are never beyond the reach of prayer. Your God, He goes with you and He goes in you. So the question becomes, how are we to respond to such massive truth and reality? Well, if you go back, if we're still in Joshua chapter 1, notice that there are six commands there. And the six commands, like I just said a minute ago, are bookended by the promises on each end. And you know what's neat? If you lay them down in, a, in an order and look at what they relate to, the last two relate, the second last two, second last and first. Let me try it again. <laughs> the first one, the sixth one relate. The second and the fifth relate. The third and the fourth relate. It's like a beautiful curve. So notice he says in verse number six, be strong. Joshua, I'm with you. Be strong. And he says in verse number six, also the second one, Joshua, be courageous. And he repeats the command. He says, be very courageous in the next verse. And then he says in verse three, verse uh, 
So number three, verse seven, he says, obey, do what the law of Moses. And in verse eight, the fourth one, he says, meditate on the law, the word of God. And in verse nine, the fifth one, he says, do not be frightened. And then the sixth one in verse nine, do not be dismayed. So be strong relates to do not be dismayed. Be courageous relates to do not be frightened. And obey the law of Moses relates to meditate on the law of Moses. And the great promise for all of us comes right out of this text. Listen, God is with us. He is in us. And he commands us to be strong in our own strength. No. We just finished preaching through Ephesians chapter 6 a few months ago. Be strong in the strength of the Lord, in His mighty strength. The strength that we go to battle with, the strength that we walk before the Lord with all the days of our life is not our own strength. And the reality is, Christian, I can prove it in my own life. The more I strive to live my, this life in my own strength, the quicker and the harder I fail and the hit, harder I hit the floor. No, he says, listen, Joshua, I'm with you. Be strong. Joshua, I am with you. Be courageous. Notice the disciples. It's it's cool. Right before this whole thing happens in Pentecost, what are they doing? They're in an upper room. What's with the door? It's locked. Why? Because the Bible says specifically, for fear of the Jews. John 20 and verse 19. They were afraid. They came to arrest Jesus, and before that, yeah, you know, we're going to go with you, Lord. We'll stand with you. we got some swords. We're going to fight. Everything goes, you know, mm. what happens? The soldiers come. Whom do you seek? Jesus says, Jesus of Nazareth, they say. He says, I am. And they all fall back and crash to the ground. You know what the disciples do? As the thing unfolds, And Jesus, in one of the most amazing moments in history, allows them to bind his hands and lead him away. They all flee into the night. And here they are on Pentecost morning, filled with the Spirit of God. They have the message of God. There's an overwhelming joy inside them. And they rush out in the streets and they begin preaching the gospel. It doesn't end there. They stand up against the Jews. They stand up against the high priests and all those leaders of the nation. They go out. They're willing to be beaten and suffer for their faith. What changed? What gave them the courage? The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. How did Joshua go and lead all those people? Rebellious. Difficult, obstinate, stubborn people. Just like sheep. How did he go and lead them? God was with him. And when God said, be strong and courageous, Joshua, he didn't mean suck it up with inside of you. Read some self-help books and off you go. You'll be fine. And I'm with you. I'm right behind you. Well, I'm in heaven, but I'm still behind you. No, he said, I'm with you, Joshua. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The courage you go with is the courage of knowing that I am with you. Listen, Christian. When you're in that hospital bed and it seems like it is so lonely, God is with you. When you're facing financial failure or great difficulties, God is with you. When you're the only one in your work group or your school group that knows and loves and walks with the Lord, God is with you. 
when you face all kinds of difficulties, and some of you are facing difficulties, I can only imagine. God is with you. He has not left you. You are not going on your own. And God does not call us to live this life in our own strength. He calls us to live this life in the abiding presence of the Spirit of God in us. But there is something for us to do in all this too. Notice the middle two commands, verse 7 and verse 8 of Joshua chapter 1. Do, be careful to obey the law of Moses. And verse 8, meditate on the law. If you notice back in verse 7, sorry, there's something I should just pick up here. He says, only be strong and very courageous, verse 7, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Don't go to the Moabites on the right and their way of doing things. And don't go to the Ammonites on the left and their way of doing things. Stay fixed upon the law of God. Do what God has called us to do. It's exactly the same for us living in this day and age. We have, excuse me, the word of God before us. We commit ourselves to doing what it says. But notice what comes behind that. He says, in this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. What cultivates that courage and that strength? It's meditating, chewing over, praying over, praying the words of Scripture into your heart and mind. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be praying. We're, we're talking here on Friday night, a couple of us. How do you pray? Sometimes you just don't know how to pray, and, and sometimes the words don't just seem to come the way we want them to. And we were saying one of the tremendous blessings of Scripture is it gives us the prayers of these great men of God that we can pray. We can take the ideas and the words and the concepts in those prayers and we can express them on behalf of one another. As we meditate on Scripture, it cultivates in us the strength and the courage and the steadfastness to follow Christ wherever He leads. Be strong in the presence of of God. Be strong in the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within you. We cultivate the courage. We cultivate the godly joy in obedience and meditation upon His Word that we might... It's not just meditate on it and know what it says. Look what he says in verse 8. Meditate on it day and night so that, that's a purpose, you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You can unpack a sermon on almost every one of those words. They're so rich in meaning and they fit the whole thing so beautifully. It's meditate on all of it so that you're careful. You're not careless and you live your Christian life. You're careful in taking the Word of God that prescribes how we are to live and to do all of it. He didn't just say, be careful to do most of it. You know, five out of seven isn't so bad. Maybe eight out of ten. No, he says, be careful to do all of it. In other words, it's a lifelong pursuit of meditation on the Word of God with the Spirit of God abiding in us, teaching us His Word. One of His roles and His, his jobs in the Christian life is to open the Word of God as we meditate and expound it to our souls. That is something very, very different. I haven't done it for a long time. Here, I'll show you. I have my sermon notes in a notebook. Um, just show you the other part of it too. This is something anybody can do who owns a pen and a piece of paper. I took all my study for this Sunday morning. It's just like that. Handwritten notes. 
Why? Because I got so used to using a computer, and I can find everything at a touch of a button. But do you know what I miss about writing? When I start to write and think and write and think, the think part's hard, the write part's easy, but, you know, you get, do what you can. As I'm thinking and I'm writing, God begins to speak. I don't mean an audible voice, nothing like that. I just mean that as I meditate and begin to write those thoughts down, he begins to organize and saw and, and the, the thoughts that teach me what to do, not just for this day, this sermon, but for other stuff as well, my own study as well. Writing, meditating, thinking on Scripture, it cultivates within us the joy, the courage, the strength, understanding how we are to live and how we are to walk. Brother and sister in Christ, listen, when he filled the disciples on Pentecost morning with the Holy Spirit, the same promise has come to every single one of us as we trust in Christ for salvation. He fills us with his spirit and gives us his abiding presence wherever we go. We will face nothing on our own. I know for some of you losing loved ones recently can be a terrible loneliness that settles in. But you are never, ever alone. God is with you. When he says in verse number five, I will be with you, I will not leave. You could actually use the word fail. I won't fail you. I won't back off and leave you on your own. When you're in the worst part of the fight, you can be absolutely assured that God will not run away. He will be there and he will carry you through. Let's move on. Notice secondly, or thirdly, the last one, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We mentioned this last week. And both of these two signs speak of of terrifying power, the wind that is terrifying power, the wind that can tear a building apart. When I was a carpenter working in Canada, we had a tornado went through the southeast United States, and they showed some of these houses after the tornadoes had gone through, and these houses were just shattered like you put a 10 tons of dynamite and just blew it up. It was all just splinters. And wind has a terrifying power to tear things apart. Wind can shatter houses. Wind can tear buildings. Fire can destroy with a terrifying force. I don't need to explain that to anybody living in Victoria. We know what fires can do as far as tearing things apart and destroying things. There's there's a terrible power inside of fire. The fire also has the power to purify metal that's heated white hot. I mentioned last week, and the impurities are driven out by that heat and gotten rid of as slag. But the power of the Spirit of God has more power than just to destroy and tear down. He also has power to transform, to change. The disciples were ordinary people. We mentioned selfish, sinful, self-exalting people. The disciples before the coming of the Spirit was fearful. Peter denied. They all fled and so on. But the Spirit of God is also associated with God's power to transform and change things. The Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Psalm 33 verse 6 talks about the creative power of God as God with His breath created all the heavens and their starry host. In Psalm, or sorry, Isaiah 59 and verse 19, it's the power of God coming to judge. And he mentions there rushing water and a great wind. That's how God will come in power. God's power to judge. In Ezekiel 3 verses 12 to 14, the power of the Spirit of God to move and transform the Spirit. 
In Micah 3, verse 8, the power of prophet said, listen, I have power to preach, power to prophesy, because I am filled with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 6, a very unlikely example. But future King Saul is told, listen, when you leave here, you're going to meet some prophets, and the Spirit of God will rush upon you, and you will be changed into a different person, another heart. And the Spirit of God has tremendous power to transform us from weak and sinful and failing, selfish people into people that God uses, those Christians that you meet, that go through life enjoying and loving and delighting in the Lord their God. Now we've been memorizing in Galatians chapter 5. So take your Bibles and flip over there. I want you to see some important things as we wrap this up. In Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26, there is a great tension in these verses. And the tension on one hand is the Spirit of God and His power and His ability to produce fruit in us. On the other hand, the power of the flesh and what it does and its destruction and death that it produces in us. So we want to see these. And I want you to see how it is that the Spirit of God transforms us. We're also going to look at Romans 8 when we finish this. But Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, the Bible says, out of curiosity, how many people memorize this? couple of you? Cool. Good on you. Well done. I, I did memorize it, although uh, someone said to me afterwards, I think you got one of the sins. You missed one of the sins there. It's possible. Here, we'll read it anyways. Galatians 5, verses 16 and 26, the Bible says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposite to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. As I mentioned a moment ago, there's a great tension there. The flesh and the spirit, the works of the flesh and the power of the spirit of God. I want you to notice those three commands or three suggestions there. He says, no, not, not suggestions, three statements there. That's a better way to say it. He says, walk by the spirit in verse 16. In verse 18, he says, if you are led by the spirit. And in verse 25, he says, if you live by the spirit. And those conditions are given there so we understand how it is the Spirit of God works in us. To walk by the Spirit, the idea of walking is a repetitive motion. It actually has a more idea of behavior. So you could paraphrase it by saying, but I say, behave by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does by the Spirit mean? 
Well, it literally means in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the means of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is that element that makes the behavior possible. So he says, walk by the Spirit. In other words, I'm saying to you, if you behave in the power of the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You say, how is it that we behave? We walk by the Spirit. It means that we submit our actions, our behavior, our attitudes, our thoughts, our thinking to the Spirit of God, and we allow Him to decide and determine how it is that we live and function. We submit our actions and our thinking to the Spirit of God that He might govern and guide the way in which we live. And if we do those things, there's only one way you can do that. You say, how's that? It's by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Take your finger, stick it in Galatians 5, and flip over or backwards to Romans 8. In case you're wondering, we're going to memorize Romans 8, a good section of it, because it, it fits well with Galatians 5. Romans 8, he says, yeah, let's read from verse 1 down to verse 9. Read the whole passage. It's worth it. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Read that phrase again. It's worth it. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Read verse 5 again and verse last part of verse 6. Those who live according to... Sorry. Those who... Uh, beg your pardon. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then the first part of verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set them on the Spirit is life and peace. How are we going to walk by the Spirit? It's right there. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Right? Set your mind on what? What are the things of the Spirit? Where are they going to be found, I wonder? Oh, someone shouted out. The fruit of the Spirit, yeah. Where are the things? Of, where do we set our minds? We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. What would we set it on? Amen, Mr. Taylor. Too shy to say it out loud, but we'll tell you what he said. He will have this. He held his Bible up. That's the word of God, right? We set our minds. Oh, hey, what did he tell Joshua to do? I forgot. He said, oh, meditate on what? The word of God, right? It's setting our minds on Scripture so we fill our minds with Scripture and our hearts with Scripture so that as we meditate on those things, we begin to walk in submission and live in submission to the Spirit of God. 
He says, if you're led by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? How do we be led somewhere? We go, here, let me show you. And we elbow our way to the front and say, you come with me. No, that's not how we are led. That's when we do the leading. When we're led, we submit ourselves and we say, you know what? You know where you're going. I will go with you. And when the Spirit of God says, I want you to go this way, and we're going to see it's a very practical, and we get to the uh, Acts 12, 13, 14 in there, Paul is traveling with his friends, and he wanted to go this way, and the Spirit of Jesus stopped him. He said, I'll go this way. And the Lord stopped him, and he had a night vision, a vision from God. A man of Macedonia saying, come over here. And the Spirit of God was active in Paul's life, leading him where he wanted him to go. And Paul could have said, you know what? I know best. I'm the, mission- I'm the head missionary here. We're going this way. And he could have persisted in pushing that way. But what you see in Paul's life is a submission to the Spirit of God's leadership and control in his life. And so he lives for God. In Galatians 5, Paul says... If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you will not, not under the law, I believe he says. Oh, no, I didn't memorize it. That's right. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. He says, if you live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Don't go rushing ahead and don't lag behind. All of this is to show us this. The Spirit of God has power to transform us. And the power to transform our lives happens as we meditate and focus and set our minds on the things of the Spirit in order that we might behave and follow and live by the Spirit of God. How is it, brothers and sisters, we live the victorious Christian life? How is it that we live the life of a Christian in a world that is determined to drive us the other way. We do so in the presence of God. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We do so under the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to transform us. And His power can be unpacked a whole bunch of other ways as well. I just want to focus on those two. In the presence of the Spirit of God, He never leaves us. And in the power of the Spirit of God, He transforms us. But you know what our problem is? You know because you got the same problem I got. We resist. We like our old ways. We like our old habits. We like the way we did things before. We like we push against it. And the Spirit of God has to come and push harder and push harder. And sometimes the Spirit of God has to bring in discipline and hard correction. And the pain that that brings into our life is designed to teach us, if you walk in obedience to me, I'm with you. And you will have a perfect life and you'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous for the rest of your life, right? You all should be doing this. No, that does not what it means. Not even remotely. If you're led by the Spirit, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're living by the Spirit, if you're living in the abiding presence of the Spirit of God, your life will be more difficult than it was when you were not a believer. Correct? Yes, correct. It will be. So what's the difference? I mean, think about the disciples, right? 
They never got beaten once until they were filled with the Spirit of God and they began to go outside and preach the gospel. Then they got beaten. Am I trying to discourage you? No. I'm trying to accurately and carefully tell you what the Bible says. I don't want you to walk out of here saying, Pastor Nelson said we could all be healthy and wealthy if we just do what the Spirit of God says. No, that's not what he said. I'm trying to say that your life in walking with the Lord will be a life of joy. You can imagine these disciples, they come out of the the Sanhedrin courts and they have been forced to lie on the ground and they took rods, whether they were cane or birch or something, and they beat them. And they believed in grace. And so the law allowed 40 stripes and in grace they held back just one so they could have a little bit of grace and go home feeling good about themselves. And these poor disciples, I don't know if you've ever been beaten with a rod 40 times, but I guarantee you your muscles and your back and some maybe even broken bones back there, you would have been limping and lurching along. And I know what I would have been doing. I'd have been complaining bitterly. You know what they were doing? They were were rejoicing. See, the one element I left out all the way through to the very end is the element of joy. It isn't just living this Christian life as a grind. And I'll be honest and and brutally transparent and confess, there are days when it feels like a grind for me. Why? Because I've lost that joy. I've lost my focus. Why is it that he says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Why did he tell Joshua, meditate on the Word of God? Because God knows in His infinite wisdom when our eyes and our minds are fixed upon Christ, it transforms not only our actions and our attitudes and our behavior, it transforms us and gives us that abiding joy. They said to uh, at a meeting in a church in Connecticut in the 1700s, late 1700s, I believe, and the church voted... I think almost unanimously, to fire their pastor. Their pastor was in the habit of refusing to give the Lord's Supper to certain people in his church because they were living in sin. And one man was who had voted against, no, it wasn't unanimous, some did vote against, but one man who had voted against firing Jonathan Edwards was given the job of taking the news and the piece of paper to Jonathan Edwards' study and saying, Jonathan, the church has voted and we have decided to dismiss you and fire you from your role as lead pastor in the church in Connecticut. I believe it was Connecticut. And uh, he wrote later and he said, when they gave him the news, Jonathan Edwards didn't even flicker. There wasn't the slightest trace of anger or discouragement or retaliation He took it in the quiet joy he had in God all through his ministry, and he accepted it. And it seemed like, as the man wrote, it seemed like his mind was fixed on something else. And to him, this piece of paper being fired from his job as a pastor, he had led the church through a great revival. Thousands came to know Christ in those days. And he walked out, and God had something else in mind. He went as a missionary to the Indians, and then he went back as um, first or first and second president of Yale, I believe. And then he later died in a smallpox vaccination gone very bad. But they said the joy on his face through all those circumstances, he knew that God was in control. He knew. 
he knew without any hesitation that God had not left him in that moment. And his behavior, because he had been so focused on the Word of God and so focused on God himself, and his mind was so set on the things of the Spirit of God, that that situation could not rob him of joy. I don't know about you, brother and sister, but that's what I want. With all my heart, I want that joy. That every twist and turn and stumble and rocky plain and seemingly insurmountable hill that we follow the Lord over does not rob us for one moment of our joy in the Lord. Because we know that He is using every single stumbling point, every single twist in the path, every single valley and every single mountain that we climb over, he's using them all to transform us into the image of Christ. So way back in Acts chapter 2, these men, fearful on one side of Pentecost, bold and preaching on the other side of Pentecost, these men, powerfully affected by the gospel, filled with the Spirit of God, knew the abiding presence of God, and knew the power of God throughout all their lives. Brother and sister in Christ, don't give up. Don't turn aside. Keep following the Lord. Know that He is with you. Keep your mind steadfastly set upon Christ and be transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. And live this life not as a grind, but as joy. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll be, we'll be done for the morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We continue before you. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God. We thank you, O oh God, for the power of the Spirit of God to fill us, to abide with us, but to powerfully transform us. Father, we thank you for the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. But Father, we thank you also that we are not called to be new creatures with no visible sign of change. But Father, we are to be new creatures living with new hearts, new attitudes, new mindsets, new behaviors. Father, we also rejoice this morning that we're not doing this in our own strength and by sucking up our own courage, by choosing and steadfastly vowing not to be frightened. But we are doing this as the Spirit of God is with us and in us and is changing us. Father, we cry out to you this morning for this whole church that you would Put within every single believer an overwhelming drive to be in the Word of God, to be meditating and studying in order that they might do it, that we might do it. We might be obedient to your Word. Father, we pray that you would do a great work in us and change us into the image of Christ. Make us more like Jesus. Not just so that we can be like Jesus, but that we might glorify Him in everything we do. Father, we ask you for your help. We give you thanks, O oh God, for a time together of worship this morning. We pray, O oh God, that you would encourage downcast hearts. You would strengthen those whose strength seems to be failing. Father, you would lift our gaze to see Jesus. 
Father, we ask you for all these things. We give you thanks, O God, for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.